cycles, new moon, full moon, waxing, waning, uh, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, I can't believe it's time to do the show again, new moon again, full moon again, new moon again, full moon again, and uh, there's, a, there's a beautiful rhythm to it, you know, you, you go out now and look at that dark sky, and uh, uh, the, the moon's going to start showing again, and building up and building up, and and then it's so full and beautiful and bright, and then it starts going back again. And uh, uh, I don't know. I'm this this time of year when uh, they say the veil is thin and it's getting darker earlier, and we're gonna be changing those clocks. And you know, I feel that hibernation urge coming on. Uh, it's uh. It's nice to be be held held by the moon and and these cycles and uh, uh, that's that's what I'm thinking about and uh, and uh, I still want to plant some garlic even though it's getting a little bit late and there there was a bit of frost this week uh, but it's supposed to warm up this weekend and I think I think it's gonna be okay and uh, I'm just gonna go for it you know just one head of garlic uh, not from the grocery store because I guess those you know sometimes they uh, radiate those or something, and, and so I, I haven't planted those, but, you know, garlic from the farmer's market, uh, have a head, you just break up the cloves, you don't take the paper off, it's so easy, and you just take a little clove, with a little pointy end up, and you just, uh, bury it in a little hole, and put some mulch on top to keep it warm, and, uh, uh, and then that little clove gives you a whole head of garlic, it's amazing, and uh so that's um that's that's my intention this new moon is to to plant some garlic this weekend uh so uh, i'll let you know on the full moon if i um if i accomplished my my goal uh and then you know and then and then you just wait and 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 grow quietly nobody nobody knows you're growing until spring right like that's once I once I plant it, I, I won't know until spring if, you know, how it worked out, uh, and that's that's the beauty of it. So uh, anyway, uh, enough of my ramblings. Uh, I have uh, some really beautiful work to share with you instead. I am going to be reading to you from Beth Gilstrap's beautiful book of stories, Deadheading. Uh, so let's, let's just get right into it. Earth Eating as Suppression by Beth Gilstrap 
Up the hill behind Pawpaw's shed, Reese dug in a good bank, pulling handfuls of slippery clay out onto the upturned lid of a garbage can. She squeezed it in her hands, leaving it crimped into mucky dinosaurs. It had rained for a solid week that February, and even at her age, she'd learned the best harvests came in winter. Winters in the Carolina Piedmont were like what folks up north call mud season, though we're almost never thawing out frozen. We stay misted and sinking in the ground from November through March. Nobody ever dreamed of a dirty little Christmas, which was almost always what we had. Our trees were trimmed a little more around the bottom after having sat on lots for any amount of time, dirt huddled in the needles, sometimes knee-high. As soon as the carpets and upholstery got cleaned up, the dogs would take one sloppy lap around the property, tongues flying, then come barreling in the doggy door and paint the den crusty red again. The whole time smiling, jowly smiles, the way only hound dogs could. Papa and Gammy couldn't stay mad for long. Those dogs were the only thing that made them laugh after a lifetime of scraping by and burying all 15 of their combined siblings. Both were the last of their families, save for their daughter Verbena and her girl, Reese. They didn't count Reese's daddy no more. Not since he ran off with a blonde who wasn't half as pretty or tall or smart as Verbena. They couldn't make heads or tails of it, so they chewed their lips and rubbed their chins and said yes every time they were asked to look after their little tomboy. Reese had slipped and landed on her knees some time ago, but was so engaged with digging she'd barely noticed how filthy her new jeans were until the cold soaked in and spread up to her hips. Her fingertips had numbed and her nose prickled in the February air. Daylight waned and the floodlights clicked on, leaving a warm halo to aid her work. Gammy and Papa would holler for her to come in any minute. She wanted to get as much mud as she could before that happened. As her hands stiffened, she rolled a glob in her palms, gently massaging the tender flesh at the base of her thumbs. With one final squeeze, she dropped the last handful on top, wiped the rest on her pant legs, because it didn't make no difference anymore, and scooped up the aluminum platter with both hands, as Gammy did any time she served fried chicken to a crowd. Reese's plate was equally special. Getting up the steps took a ballerina's grace and posture. But when Reese reached the door, she realized she wouldn't be able to jar the thing loose without a grown-up's help. The house had settled, and the ground had shrunk and swollen a million times over between the extreme draughts of summer and the deluge of cooler months. Reese thought a lot about what would happen to her body if she could shrink and swell on the same level of that good red dirt. Would she lizard? Would she water moccasin? Would she worm? She would hole up in a ground nest in summer and lie in wait for a fuzzed creature as soon as she had preened herself free of hair and demands. Papa must have heard her jingling around the door because about the time she'd gotten frustrated enough to throw her mud plate, his haunting silhouette appeared behind the cafe curtains. He tapped on the glass, asking her if she wanted in. Maybe I want to get in of my own accord, Reese said. Suit yourself, he said, trying to hide the smile in his voice. But as he stepped away, she changed her mind. 
Papa, she said, no longer fighting balance and full hands and swollen doors. I got something for you and Gammy. Well then, he said, pulling the door open with a jolt. I'll take payment upon entry. Reese walked through the kitchen, where a pot of collards spit and hissed in the pressure cooker, and okra cooled on paper towels. Her stomach growled, thinking about the cornmeal crunch and the hint of char from the last one spooned out of the hot grease. On the other side of the kitchen, Gammy was down in the den working a puzzle on a TV tray while the dog snored next to her. The castle at Magic Kingdom. She had the spires and turrets, but the bottom had yet to be filled in. Remember when we met Goofy? Gammy asked. He had the best ears and smelled like ketchup, Reese said, placing her mud plate on top of the puzzle. What have we got here? Looks like someone's been up the hill harvesting mud. The good stuff, Reese said. That bit of sour you can't get nowhere but here. It's been a long time since I've had a good bit of mud. Folks don't eat it like they used to. Only ignorant people partake in such things, Papa said. Women in particular. Don't pay him no mind, baby. I didn't have time to make it into pies before supper. It gets dark so early now. Come here and sit on my lap, and we'll make the patties together. They sat rolling the mud until it dried in their hands. Gammy told her how her mother salted and baked the clay in the oven and drizzled apple cider vinegar on top, breaking it with her fork while it was still warm. Some folks won't never understand the desire to let the earth melt under the tongue, to let the thousands of microbes disseminate into the body, to suppress the unnameable pain growing in the belly, she said. Your mama sure doesn't, she said, raising a piece to Reese's lips and catching the crumbs.
that was Gabrielle Griffiths with Magical Thoughts. Sinking and Swaddled. Ona left the day before her mother succumbed to a sinking disease. The two of them stood on the precipice of a black crevasse, tying broom and mop handles together with kitchen twine so they might poke the bottom. But when Ona felt no resistance, no thunk in mud, no yielding to water, she knew grim days were ahead. Her mother read the signs, too, and shut herself in the bedroom, never to emerge. Pleading, Ona said, "'We'll find a safe place to sleep, Mama. You gotta come with me. We gotta make our own salvation. And it's out in the world, not behind this shoddy door.' But the sinking had already pulled her skeleton too hard, too fast. A steel frame at the base of quick, dry concrete. Ona did all she could. She whispered, I always loved the way you brushed my hair slick, like I should be made of satin ribbon and tall, not square-built and sun-sour. She pulled purple chalk from her jeans pocket, drew a heart on the door, and gathered her things. She swore she felt the earth drop, like a hitch in an elevator, several miles from her mother's house. She thought of all those bed linens agitated, curled, heaped on top of her mother, sunk along with everything else, beams, roof tiles, the acrylic nails her mom wore, the senselessness of waste. Her father had sunk, too. Years ago, in a prefab home out on the lake. One day the lake rose a mite and the ground dove a mite, and from what her mother said, her father was better off down there probably still passed out on his leather couch. Ona had been swaddled and maneuvered into the bow of a rowboat and, as legend tells, slept through the whole affair. Perhaps it was this swaddling she longed for more than anything with all this terrible sinking going on. Ona walked for days, determined to find safety on higher ground. If she read her instruments correctly, she was adjacent to a national forest. The public would not stand for the sinking of a national forest, so when she found a slate bungalow, she settled there. Though two walls were missing, she concluded it was due to wind and rain and the birch tree that had swindled its way up and through the middle of the sweet abandoned home. It wasn't sinking. The kitchen still held a butcher block table with a family of plates. Ona piled them one on top of the other and pulled them to her chest, sick with grief sick with longing at the sight of the dust-free circles left behind. After rinsing each dish in the creek, she dried them with her shirt sleeve and put them back in place. At dusk, fingertips numb, Ona tore sheets of bark from the tree, building herself a papery cradle on the uneven floorboards where she could sleep for years. Geese fly over Singing songs of tomorrow, I can hear the falcon. Our heads open, spilling thoughts till we're empty. I can feel the night come. Tell me that it's over now, and I can find. Like a star.
Gabrielle Griffiths with My Ghost Only Lingers Here. No matter how fine. Janine worked longer hours than most women her age, but she wasn't quite ready to admit it was all for naught, that her shop was failing. In the quiet after closing, when she shut the music off and she sent her employees home, the lines in her forehead softened. Her shoulders fell into their natural slope, and she came back to the parts of herself she kept closed off to everyone except her father and Maddie. It was summer, and she loved how the shadows lengthened and dappled, leaving the red sofa in a romantic haze. The track lighting she'd invested in could never do that. If she could have harvested those soft edges all year, maybe she would have sold more furniture. But how much can lighting possibly matter when everyone's upside down on their houses and can't afford gas? Still, Janine loved her store. The till caught a glare, so she moved the paperwork to the farmhouse table next to the register. The table had a long scratch down the middle, and its legs were cracked from too many shifts in moisture and heat. But Rustic was popular, thanks to those yahoos on HGTV. She crouched over, counting bills into straight piles. Six twenties, five tens, four fives, and twenty-seven ones. Tapping the pile on the table, she straightened it into a neat brick and looked up, squinting. On these days when sunlight appeared almost watered down, Janine always thought of her grandma. She zipped the deposit bag, reached to the light board behind her, and flipped black switches to the off position, four at a time. Her store darkened like a stage, section by section, sofa by sofa. Her grandma would tell her to do something about the extra inventory. No matter how fine the furnishings, crowding made everything in a room seem like junk. The shop Janine opened was a life-size shadow box less than a mile from where her grandma had lived most of her life, where the ranch houses gave way to a lane of glass storefronts. This was Midwood, a neighborhood that used to be populated by former GIs and their families, now housed their windows interspersed with 20-year-olds who wore artistic mindsets and tight jeans. Trees had been planted along the main plaza in the late forties. Now their branches touched, making the street a cove. Janine loved this about Charlotte, its green fortress created by willow oaks. Some people remarked on their beauty and thanked the Lord for shade. 
and some folks hated them because of the pollen that built up like snowdrifts come March and April. Wealthier families wrapped their trees with black belts to protect them from a particularly dangerous breed of beetle. But Janine hadn't grown up on that side of town. She grew up closer to Eastland Mall with her father, where the trees were still staked down, where owners tried to keep them from growing crooked or falling, where the houses were four models repeated over and over down every street. Before opening day three years ago, Janine had her dad and Maddie help unload the first truck. Janine checked off numbers on her clipboard, signed her first vendor invoice, and slapped the driver on the shoulder, giddy from possibility, her hair frizzing in the humidity of a summer morning. But by late afternoon, her dad had strained something in his groin. Janine could tell by the way he tucked his back when he walked, but he didn't say a word. He told Janine when he leaned in to kiss her on the forehead that her grandma would be proud. I can see her now, clad in a pantsuit, one of those styrofoam cups in her hand, shuffling through here, nodding. She'd like the white sofa. Probably that wild disco lamp, too, he said, tying his blue bandana on his head. You really think she'd like it? When she retired from Highland Park Mill, her grandma kept on sewing. She made the slipcovers on her furniture along with Janine's clothes, jumpers and smock dresses. On their mall trips, her grandma would wobble and grab at Janine's hand. From behind, she resembled a shopping rhinoceros, and with great snorty breaths, she'd situate plastic bags in the crook of her elbow and balance orange Julius cups under her chin. The sight of her was magic. I do think she'd like it. Mama always could make a house shine, just like you, he said. Except the ceiling. She'd say it looked like the mill, too exposed. But you'll get to that when you start selling some of this junk. This neighborhood should love it, this fake old shit. You'll have those old big hairs in here in no time, stinking up the place with that Chanel garbage your mother used to wear. God, I hope so. I need big hairs all over the place. I don't care if they're doused in kerosene. Send them over. Too bad you don't have any friends to push my way, she said, twisting again under the weight of impractical clothes. She'd change into the spare jeans she kept in the trunk of her Honda after he left. Besides, I'm going to bring an authentic vintage, too, Dad. I have a few pieces at home I got from an estate sale. A walnut vanity and a seti. Speaking of, Janine put her clipboard down on the asphalt, put her hands together and stuck out her lip, a trick that never failed to work on her father. Next Saturday work, he asked, rubbing his elbows. I have some side jobs coming up this week, so I can't do it until the weekend. And, darling, what in God's name is a seti? She sat down on the curb, kicked her shoes off, and patted the sidewalk. It's like a love seat, Dad, but fancier, I guess. Honey, if I get down there, I ain't ever getting up, he said. My knees. I'm working you too hard. Nonsense. I can't crawl around on the ground as well as I used to. About that time, the trash truck squeezed through the thin lane behind Cotswold Shopping Center, backing up next to her dad's truck, hissing and beeping. I hope he stays clear of my baby. She's paid for, and I'd hate to see her dinged. The truck's cobalt patina had faded long ago, but the white wall tires shone. The letters had peeled off, leaving the F-O-R-D a darker shade of blue. A dolly was strapped to the back, and a Gandalf action figure hung from the rearview mirror. For Janine, that truck was an extension of her dad. She couldn't imagine him driving anything else. That truck was part of the landscape, part of his home. It had left permanent grease stains on the asphalt in front of the house. 
Her memory lay in the bed of that pickup. Summer days when the metal burned her bare legs and feet. Even when she got tired of the old neighborhood and the whole of Charlotte, Janine never thought of trying to live any other place. But Janine's dad didn't have much of a poker face when it came to where he grew up. She knew he was disappointed she hadn't gone away to school, but she loved how he tried to be positive about the store for her sake, though he wasn't always successful. He'd always said he felt suffocated by so much consistency. The same front porches with the same two concrete steps. Some would paint them green or dark gray. His mother had painted the whole porch white and put down a piece of outdoor carpet, not unlike astroturf. He'd rolled matchbox cars over the high grass and sent them shooting over the edge of the cliff into the azaleas, the same shrubs that were planted in front of every porch, mocking him with hot pink flowers he'd rip off as he walked past. Her grandma had sat on that porch, cross-stitching, smushing cigarette after cigarette into a crystal ashtray, somehow managing not to burn the fabric. Janine had sat on that porch, bickering with him about his ideas on uniformity, until he'd concede Janine was different, her shop was different. Okay, then, I'll help you with your so-called settee. Shit, he said, why can't people call stuff by what it is? And what, no tete-a-tetes, he asked, poking her in the kidney. He dug his keys from his pocket. Could you stop being so you for today? The man was tickled and laughed all the way to his truck, limp and all. Love you, he said over his shoulder. You too. Maddie came through the back door, her arms full of fabric samples. Where do you want these? Do we have hangers? Where's he off to anyway? I thought he was going to stay and help unpack all this shit, she said, struggling to hold on to the load of blue and green fabric squares. I dropped half these things on the way out. He's hurt himself, Janine said, scooping half the stack from Maddie's arms. Looks like it's just the girls. ABC stores across the parking lot. Maybe after we get the store set up. I worry about Daddy, she said, as she and Maddie set the fabric on the sidewalk. They walked to the Honda together. Something's off. Janine's dad had told her he'd only stayed in this town for her mother, a woman whom he'd loved for her kiss t-shirts and wall of hair said she'd hooked him from the start with promises and gumption. Not for her, I'd up and left when I was 18, he'd always said. Her mother had left them on Janine's seventh birthday. Janine heard it over and over, but chose not to listen anymore, how her dad would have done this, that, and the other if only he could have gotten away. The truth was, her daddy saw himself as more of an easy rider type than he turned out to be. Janine's never known him to wander, even through town. Maybe... Maybe that's why her mom left, because of routine. Most days, he was so worn down, he sat on his porch in an Adirondack chair, four Budweiser's beside him. Exactly four. Knew his limits. Been doing that since he and Janine's mother had moved back to the neighborhood and closer to Janine's grandparents. Now he was stuck in their old house. He had moved in and sold the house he had shared with Janine and her mother when his father took sick. Obligation will fall like a blackout curtain if you let it. The truck sputtered. He hung his arm out the window, banged on the door, and then waved goodbye as he drove off. As she watched the truck, she wondered if he was right about her grandma. She liked to think they were working on this place together, partners in crime beyond the grave. When Janine was young, they spent many days together, gathering goods and making plans for all the things they were going to make. But Janine could feel the desperation in it, even at that age. She knew it was all to keep from sitting still. The two, separated by a generation of guilt, had that in common.
It wasn't any surprise when she opened a shop some twenty years after her grandma passed, after the last time she sat at her knee, holding the bolts of fabric up from the floor so she could watch her grandma cut them with toothy pinking shears. Janine rescued remnants, especially the silks, and even now, if a silk was discontinued, she'd take the swatch home. He's fine, Janine. He's getting up there, Maddie said, waiting for Janine to open the trunk. I can't believe you got dressed up for today. What the hell? I don't know. I wanted to look the part, I guess, but I didn't think about dirty cardboard and picks in my hose. I blame the hour. Keep an eye out, she said, slipping into the back seat and pulling off her skirt and hose. The jeans came up soft. Better? Better, Janine said, leaving her skirt and hose folded into a square on the back seat. Let's do this, Maddie said, reaching out and pulling Janine up from the car. They stretched, arms up and wide. Janine looked at Maddie, her exposed belly. Plaza Midwood? Hell, all of Charlotte. Better love my store, or my fat ass will be camped at my grandparents' house with Dad in a year. That happens. I'll help you set up your tent. Janine and Maddie stayed until 3 a.m., cutting the plastic off sofas, screwing the legs on tables, and playing house. When they finished vacuuming and wiping shelves down, Maddie got out her cigarette holder and fastened a camel to the end. I'd really prefer you not smoke in here. Just this once. You don't open for a couple days. We'll open the doors tomorrow. They stretched down on chaise lounges and talked in their best Catherine Hepburn voices, jutting their chins and arching their backs. You know why I like her? Maddie asked. The cheekbones? Because she wore men's slacks and didn't believe in Jesus. Maddie had that way about her, saying things people never expected, and it was more pronounced by her wide-set eyes. I don't know about that. No, I read it in a book about famous atheists. You read something? Suck it, I read. Your mother would be so proud, Janine said, smacking her head on a table. At least I don't need a helmet, she said, getting up to pay the delivery man. I'm taking a 20 from your wallet. By the time Maddie walked back with the food, their laughter had quieted, but not to awkwardness. They'd known each other most of their lives. Maddie knew when to distract Janine and when to let the mood shift. They ate pizza on the floor and drank soda from paper cones, content in each other's company. Three years later, Janine struggled to keep the store open. Every night, she counted fewer bills in the drawer. That night, as she locked the door, she saw a silver sedan at the end of the parking lot. She put her keys in between her fingers and walked to her car. She could see someone's silhouette, but her eyes weren't so great at night, particularly when she forgot her glasses. She got in, locked the doors, and to be safe, drove to her grandparents' old house, where her dad now lived. Daddy, you up, she asked, as she walked in the back door. He sat rocking back and forth in the glider, watching Hogan's Heroes. The glider was one of the few pieces he'd brought from their old house. Most of it he'd taken to Goodwill. He hadn't made it his home. I'm up, he said. Can I stay here tonight? There was some creep watching me outside the store. Sure, baby cakes, he said, never taking his eyes off the screen. There's chili in the fridge if you're hungry. Baby cakes? You drunk, old man? Maybe a little. Figures. You saved me some? Janine heated up a bowl of chili, cracked a can of Budweiser, and wondered how this house still managed to smell like her grandmother all these years after her death. Maybe she had smelled like the house, 
like talcum and Chanel and cigarette smoke. The white cafe curtains her grandma made, yellowed from countless Virginia slims lit and burned so many years ago. No one would replace them. When she got back to the den, her dad was asleep with his mouth open. She took the remote from his hand, covered him with the red and black afghan, and switched it to the Daily Show. She thought if this house was ever hers, she'd paint the paneling, get rid of that mid-century look. He snored himself awake. What's this about someone watching you? I don't know. There was some silver car at the end of the lot with no lights on, just sitting, she said, scraping the bowl. You carry that stun gun I gave you? No, I left it at home. Maybe I should teach you to shoot, he said, raising an eyebrow at John Stewart's Jersey guy accent. Funny, who is this guy? You never watch John Stewart? No, hon, I ain't, he stood. You want to go to the range tomorrow? You know I don't believe in guns, said the woman who got so spooked she came to spend the night with her dad. I gotta be at the store early. You turning in? I reckon so, he said, rocking himself out of the recliner. Want to get breakfast in the morning? I'll make you waffles, he said, mussing her hair, long as you don't care if they're ego. Can't wait, she said. As he creaked his way up the steps, she put her bowl in the sink and filled it with water. She walked through the kitchen into the dining room, touching the pea-green wallpaper. The mirror reflected light from the street lamp because her dad never bothered to pull the lace curtains closed, so that anybody who wanted to see him was free to watch. She walked over to the window, blew on it, and made a baby footprint with the fleshy part of her fist. She thought she saw the tail end of the silver car as it passed, but when she lay her forehead against the window, she could only make out tail lights. She wondered about her dad, how he slept these days, whether his back was any better. She meant to ask him. She always meant to. A man walked by with a basset hound. She thought of Applejack, her grandma's old mutt who used to always knock his head on the table legs. She used to play with him and feed him broccoli when no one was looking. She got down on her knees. The blue bubblegum wad was still there, spread wide and thin. Tomorrow, over Eggo's, she would ask her dad if she could have the table for the store. She knew he'd say yes. She took a deep breath and walked to the next room over, the little room, her grandma used to call it. It was a guest room, and her grandma's sewing room all in one. A single bed was pushed against the window. The pillows her grandma had cross-stitched still sat arranged in the same order. Cardinals on the left, the little girl kneeling and praying, now I lay me down to sleep, in the middle and violets on the end. As a child, she had stared out the window at the street light and wondered what her life would be like if her mother was looking at the same stars, if she thought of her. She'd sleep with all the pillows on the bed and get upset whenever they fell on the floor. When she couldn't sleep, Janine would trace the raised stitches, think of the looped packages of thread, the yellow plastic box with removable trays her grandma kept them in, the old butter mint tin she kept her buttons in, how she'd dump them on the floor and try to find matches. Her grandma let her play with all her sewing stuff, but she never let her work the machine on her own. After she died, Janine took the box of thread and the button tin home with her. She never had the heart to learn to sew for real, but every now and then she'd cross-stitch a Christmas ornament, something simple with only X's. She'd have to tape up the back of them, because she never learned the proper way to finish a piece. The sewing machine still had its plastic cover on. 
A tomato pincushion sat next to it. Reds, yellows, and blues clustered together in tiny balls of color. Janine ran her fingers over the pins. She pushed them all down completely. She'd take this, too. Janine pulled out her grandma's ladder-back chair, retied the strings of the cushion, and took a seat. Someone had dusted recently. She pulled the cover off the machine. It was cream and sage green. A 60s singer her grandma would never have parted with. There was still a spool of thread in the top, half used. She always wondered what her grandma had been working on when she died. She turned the hand wheel. The needle moved. Her grandma had kept the patterns in a filing cabinet next to the machine. It had been years since Janine touched the collection. She liked the sketches on the outside. The women were always trim and made up with architectural hair. They struck poses with their hands held out to their sides, looked like they'd just turned around, caught in a moment of glee that could only be caused by a great pair of pleated trousers or a tea-length dress worn with white gloves. As she rummaged, she found the patterns for a lot of her own childhood clothes. The overalls her grandma had sewn in red corduroy were there represented in denim, all her Christmas and Easter dresses. She wondered what her grandma would have made her as an adult. A white pantsuit? A simple A-line dress? Indigo? Soft pink? Butter yellow? When Janine realized she didn't have anything to sleep in, she walked upstairs, using her phone as a flashlight so she wouldn't disturb her father. He slept in his boyhood room since he'd moved back in. Hadn't had the nerve to take over his parents' room. She crept down the hallway past his cracked door to her grandparents' old room. She knew her dad hadn't been able to part with her grandpa's clothes yet. She pulled out a plain white t-shirt, wondering if it was creepy to sleep in the clothes of the dead. It felt cool as she pulled it over her head, smelled like cedar. She looked over at their full-size bed and the eaves on the right side of the room. Her grandma slept on that side of the bed because she was a good head shorter than her grandpa. She remembered the long gowns her grandma had slept in, and how her grandpa slept outside the covers in nothing but his birthday suit. Her grandpa had gotten rid of her grandma's clothes, even the ones she'd made. Said he couldn't take looking at them anymore. Janine had told him she'd take them, but he'd told her, Girl, that ain't natural. You gotta get on with your life. Her grandpa's shirt hit her mid-thigh. Standing in the doorway to their room, she flipped the switch and hugged her own clothes to her chest, feeling palpitations. She closed her eyes, breathing in the smell of the furnace being turned on for the first time in months. Grandma Sue was there in her poppy housecoat with red pockets, telling her to turn in, settle down, that she'd be down in a few to tuck her in. Back in the little room, Janine rolled into a ball under the covers. In the blue-tinted light of the street lamp, she strained to remember the feel of her grandmother's hand on her head.
That was Gabrielle Griffiths with Answers We Never Get. And this is Beth Gilstrap's What Magic. We don't live in the neighborhood anymore. Not where foundations are cracked and the sides of the buildings we called home have already begun their inevitable descent. Where we made games out of which marble, spyglass red or blue, would slide into the left corner of the living room first. Greg even drew a basketball net, but he couldn't capture the third dimension yet, so it looked like a spider web. We don't live where the bugs come in no matter how much poison Mom put out or how much she scoured the place with bleach. Not where cupboards house baggies of flour, of sugar, of coffee, and cornmeal zipped up where ants and cockroaches can't get to them. I never told her how I'd pull a stool over to the counter and taste all the spices. How I chewed cloves until the tender parts of my mouth burned and went numb. How the white pepper made me sneeze. How a bug I couldn't name had crawled into the dehydrated onion. Mom must have found it because the next time I was up there, sticking my fingers in Crisco and wondering how she did what magic she did to dumplings and chicken. The onion was gone and everything else was in bags. But no, no. We don't make a special trip to the discount bread store where we buy six or eight loaves at a time and keep them in the big freezer in the den. We don't cut people's hair in the kitchen anymore. We don't stink up the house with chemicals to make all us bone-tired women look less so. We don't have people banging on the screen door asking for work, asking for money, for a ride, saying, Honey, baby, please, and bless you, child, and stealing our lawnmower once it gets dark because the streetlights haven't blinked on in years. We don't have men standing on porches midwinter in their boxers, smoking and sipping from a brown bag, talking about Texas Hold'em, and asking us do we know if our mamas have any cards and pennies because they could show us how to make a living, but no, no. We don't plant vegetable gardens because we need the food. We don't boil cabbage and pressure-cook greens, turning the whole house rank. We don't pick chickens clean or fry livers, patch the backsides and knees of our jeans, brush our teeth with baking soda, or ever hang our wet clothes on the line. And we no longer wait up for Mama to get home from overtime, or stay alone behind locked doors, hiding in the back of the closet, behind coats that smell like stale cigarettes and old fun, our hearts palpitating, sick with solitude come too soon. Ooh. Mm-hmm. 
that was Gabrielle Griffiths with Meadowsweet. Bone words. The grass marks on his cheek when he rolled over kept me from waking him. A clump of clippings at his zygomatic bone. God knows what burrowing near his neck, near the occipital bone, along the base of his skull, where I'd held him. Soft spots no one thinks on. I like paying attention to places on a body most people take for granted. A smear of my lipstick, color medieval, true to its claim, everlasting on his Adam's apple. That sweet hunk of thyroid cartilage named for sin. His eyes, hair falling across them, still closed, still twitching like the horned beetle I'd picked off the dead pine next to our tent. I'd read in biology how when you see them, rarely any time but dusk, they're only ever searching for their lovers or fighting. Other males, only males, of course, always fighting, for decaying fruit or sap, favored mating grounds close to rotten wood. The sleeping boy is too sweet for fighting. He writes songs about my hair. The sleeping boy's brother will find out about us alone in the old growth our chapped skin, our damaged tent, and helplessly hope our similar smells are his imagination gone dark. I found no female, but the beetle's hiss and mandible impressed me, a dribble of my own saliva hanging as I petted his head, fighting the urge to tie a string around his dorsal plate and wear him as an amulet. Later, I will want to tell the sleeping boy's brother how lizards and snakes and beetles of the family Lucinidae have vast variations in size between juvenility and adulthood, how their bodies are bound to environment with only a smidge of genetic influence. But all I can explain before he slams the door is how females have smaller, more powerful jaws. When I drive away, I will say mandible out loud to an empty car, and roll all the windows down, praying for rain, praying for wings, praying for horns of my own.
Gabrielle Griffiths with I Cut My Hair. I guess it's time for a little mise. On on the menu today, uh, I've got a different snack for you. Uh, Instead of our usual mini interview with the featured musician, I'm going to do an oracle. Uh, that's because uh, Gabrielle Griffiths, uh, this is her second time being featured on the show. Uh, you might remember she was the music for season one, episode six, Living in a Material World, uh, which was my interview with fiber artist and teacher Jody Colella. And now we're in season two. This is episode five. And uh, I've brought you more of Gabrielle Griffiths' beautiful music. Uh, I just think it's haunting and gorgeous and uh, love it. Hope you do too. Uh, Gabrielle Griffiths is a multimedia artist, writer, and musician and works as a librarian. Uh, Her website is gabriellegriffiths.com. That's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-G-R-I-F-F-I-S.com. And you can find her writing and her music there. Uh, so I've decided um, so, uh, you can go back to season one, episode six, and listen to the interview uh, with her. But um, this uh, this time, I'm, I'm going to pull an oracle uh, for Gabrielle. And uh, if you're a long, long, long time listener, you know I started at Boston Free Radio uh, in 2011 when they started. Uh, doing a live radio show Tuesday nights, The Secret Lives of Stuffed Animals with my pal Stumpy. And we had something we called the Sweet Valley Oracle. Now, this is not the original uh, number 86, Jessica against Bruce. Can anyone win this deadly battle? No, we don't think so. But uh, just the other day, I found in a little free library near me, uh, Francine Pascal's Sweet Valley High number 74, the perfect girl. Robin will do anything to keep George. And um, I think this this is this is going to be the the new oracle. Uh, you know, number seventy four. Uh, I think is is an auspicious number. I was. It's not prime. Uh, I don't know why I thought it was. Uh, uh, seventy four is even. Well, when you add seven and four, you get eleven, which is prime. Um, but in numerology, you would keep adding it, and it would be one and one, and it would be two, so it still wouldn't be prime. But, but seventy-four, seven plus four is eleven, and eleven's prime. So I think it's I think it's a good number. And uh, I actually just uh, inaugurated this uh, over FaceTime uh, with Stumpy, so uh, it's it the Oracle is working. And um, basically, uh, what happens with the Sweet Valley Oracle? Usually, you know the 
the person used to be in the studio and, and could do it, but sometimes, you know, they couldn't. And, and so Stumpy and I would just uh, flip through ourselves uh, for each other or for them. But uh, the idea is you just, you know, hear that sound. You just uh, flip through, flip through, and then uh, when it feels right, point your paw down at a passage and read it and then, you know, apply it. So I'm uh, I'm going to pull an oracle for Gabrielle Griffiths and uh, hope it's a good one. Uh, sometimes we like to flip the book upside down, flip, open, turn. Okay, now I'm going to read. Elizabeth expected Robin to laugh along with her, but to her surprise, Robin looked deadly serious. No, it's not. Well, uh, and then... Then you have to put your mind to work to how can that, how does that oracle apply? So um, I'll, I'll read it again. Elizabeth expected Robin to laugh along with her, but to her surprise, Robin looked deadly serious. No, it's not. Um, since Gabrielle's not here to talk with me about this oracle, I don't, sh I can interpret it. Um, but, uh, uh, you know. I I don't know if if it's an oracle for me I might be thinking that nobody's laughing along with me but um uh that's that's not the case so uh, you all listening out there are enjoying this right uh so I don't know the the oracle works in mysterious ways and um uh you know sometimes being being deadly serious is is a good thing so uh uh Gabrielle Griffiths, that, that was your oracle. Um, I hope it means something to you. Thank you so much for sharing your music with us again. Um, and uh, I think we'll just, that's, that's our mise for today. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo, tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. to see you. Oh, what do you have there? Aw, uh, I brought you some hawthorn berries. Oh my goodness, fresh hawthorn berries. Those are beautiful. Thank you, Mr. Bear. Aw, uh, I thought you might like to tincture them. Oh, Mr. Bear, you know me so well. These are beautiful, and I've never worked with the fresh berries before. I've only had the dried berries, and oh my gosh, this is so exciting. Uh, these are just gorgeous look at that color oh no i i was so excited to find them uh, this was a a real gift just a, a bounty of of berries uh you know i only took a few paws full uh to come share with you uh so there's plenty for the birds and the critters too uh but uh 
I thought, you know, uh, hawthorn berries, what, what better gift to bring Miss Mousy on the new moon? Oh, Mr. Bear, uh, this is just delightful. Um, I'm, I'm going to tincture these. Uh, I think, um, I'll tincture some in vodka and some in brandy. I know brandy's a traditional way of, of tincturing hawthorn berries. Uh, but we'll do some with the plain vodka, too. And then after a month or so, when we strain them out, we can compare them. Oh, yeah, that, that would be fun. And then we can mix them up with other things and make some formulas and elixirs. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. Um, and hawthorn is just... Ah, it's look at these. I mean, you can see why people work with Hawthorne for the heart, um, you know, for the physical heart and the emotional heart. Uh, I mean, just look at this color, and ah, I just ah, my heart already feels better just holding these berries. Oh uh, yeah, that's uh, you know, all uh, these Hawthorne trees uh, are. Oh, they have so much beauty and, and power and those big thorns. I know, those thorns are amazing, aren't they? Oh, they're so long and sharp, um, but they're spaced out so that deer can still eat. Uh, so, I mean, thorns, thorns are about protection. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, thorns, they hurt, get rid of thorns. But, you know, we all... We all need some thorns uh, to have to create a little space for ourselves, um, you know, especially us smaller creatures like the mice and the rabbits and the birds. Um, you know, it's it's nice to have a thorny place to go to. Uh, so I I love working with thorns. Um, you know, I would sometimes tincturing them, but really just just looking at the thorns and just um, touching them a little bit, just you know, just. Gently prick your paw on the thorn, you know, and just kind of be present with them. And you don't, you don't even have to take them off the plant to do that. Um, but I, I love to gather hawthorn thorns when they're just down on the ground. Oh yeah, I see your your big collection over there. Yeah, any any time I I like to gather some up and and save the thorns and put them in these pretty glass uh, bowls and things. Um, or just stand them around. Uh, they're they're just so so lovely. Um, but like I said, to have some fresh berries. Oh, this is a real treat. I mean, people often work with hawthorn for grief and loss and sorrow. Uh, there's just so much of that. Um, this it's a rough rough time. It's been a rough couple of years, and there's so much loss and mourning. On such a big level, um, I think everybody needs a little hawthorn, and uh, maybe uh, maybe people can find some some hawthorn trees near them. Um, you know, remind your listeners, Mister Bear. I'm just a two-dimensional, hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, so you know they should all do their own research and you know look up uh, look up some you know botany identification and make sure they. They can can identify the hawthorn tree, but with the thorns, it's pretty easy. But uh, maybe they'll find some in you know full of berries around them now, and and then you know they can can make some hawthorn tincture at home too. Um, and then 
we can all have some of this wonderful Hawthorne medicine. Um, so I love that idea, Miss Mousy. Uh, yeah, all of all of us having some Hawthorne tincture, Hawthorne cordial, or Hawthorne or Hawthorne, or just plain Hawthorne tea, of course, uh, or a Hawthorne chai um, with a. Hawthorn berries and cinnamon and clove and nutmeg and, you know, all your usual kind of chai and uh, pumpkin spice kind of uh, spices. Uh, you know, throw all those in a pot. Uh, oh, reishi would be nice, too. Yeah, and just bring it to a boil and then simmer for a long time. And then you have this beautiful, warm, delicious chai. Uh, yeah, Hawthorne, Hawthorne berries and chai is, is wonderful too. Um, oh, there's just, oh, so many, so many things. Um, it's, it's hard to decide what to do. But I'm going to tincture these berries and, um, I hope your listeners can get their hands on some Hawthorne berries too. And, um, and we can all just share in the magic and beauty of Hawthorne together and, uh, you know, maybe uh, bring a little a little healing to our hearts. Sounds like a plan, Miss Mousy. Uh, well, I'm going to go finish the show, seeing as I'm already a little late, as I often am. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll be back uh, to see you on the full moon. Okay, take care, Mr. Bear, and uh, good luck planting that garlic. Okay, thanks, Miss Mousy. Bye. <laughs>
That was Gabrielle Griffiths with Besides You. And that's the show. Thanks so much for joining me in the Violet Hour. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the beautiful work of Beth Gilstrap. Um, Her book, Deadheading and Other Stories, was the winner of the 2019 Red Hen Press Women's Prose Prize. And it's available now from Red Hen Press. So you can go to redhenpress.org and pick up your own copy to hear more of those beautiful stories. And you can find out more about Beth Gilstrap and her beautiful writing. She also has some other wonderful books at her website, bethgilstrap.com. That's B-E-T-H. G-I-L-S-T-R-A-P dot com. And uh, she's a wonderful writer and wonderful person. Uh, so uh, I hope, I really hope you enjoyed the show and we'll go pick up her book. And uh, thank you all for, for being here and listening. So uh, take care and uh, I'll be back on the full moon. And uh, until then, uh, be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.